Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. This is Scraps and Scrolls. This is Storm of Swords Part 3, an additional podcast, a history of Westeros's Father Aurelius projects, and we're currently doing Storm of Swords. So, good morning. I am Sir Buckley. I am speaking to you from a very sunny England. Nice blue sky, no clouds. Unfortunately, that is not the situation uh, within my own mind, within my own soul. Um, I'm sure. Some of you have seen me tweeting on and there was an extra bonus podcast yesterday talking about the death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, seven other people, tragic helicopter accident the weekend. I'm going to be talking about that as much today, obviously. It's back to work as normal, um, except that it's not really uh, normal for me anymore. Um, that was one of the harder things yesterday. No chance of me doing this podcast. I don't want to do it today, if I'm completely honest with you. Um, but if you know anything about Kobe Bryant, he would be uh, telling everyone just to get to work. And if NBA players can get out on a court in front of millions of people whilst they're tearing up and coaches and commentators and everyone else, if they can do it, there's no reason I shouldn't be as well. And um, it's those tributes, actually, those <laughs> chants of Kobe and uh, standing ovations. I can't really watch those without getting choked up. Um, many of you have sent very nice supportive messages messages that you're in the same kind of pain as I am like I said I don't want to repeat myself from yesterday it wasn't a particularly coherent podcast my thoughts still aren't gathered but I think it is important to note and being able to admit when you're not okay I can tell you I'm not okay at the moment um, very dark place very rough time um, but it does produce a sense of family and um, all togetherness I suppose with this NBA community that I've been a part of for so long so just know that that's on my mind on many people's minds um, that's going to stay with me I don't know I'm obviously going to try and think of some larger tribute going forward but for now I think like I say it's just getting to work keep that work effort keep that passion alive um, if it's taught us anything it's to embrace what you love and take advantage of it, appreciate it, so let's do that, shall we, because we all like A Song of Ice and Fire, we all love A Storm of Swords, um, and this is part three of that 17-part uh, reread project, so we'll get to a lot of notes today, five chapters today, and I'll push through, and I'm sure you will forgive me if uh, my voice sounds... I know I don't have a particularly happy-go-lucky voice anyway, but if it sounds particularly not too happy today, do forgive me. Um, this is something I'm going to be carrying with me and many people will be carrying with them going forward. I think that was the hardest thing about today. I didn't want to just get up, do a podcast like normal because, like I say, it's not normal. Um, it will never go back to the way it was. But for now, I've got Kobe's jersey here next to me. I've got his poster here on my right. And let's get down to it, shall we? We'll use that Mamba mentality a bit. So yes, this is Isle of Faces. This is Storm of Swords Part 3. Before we get going with our five chapters, three things for today. Firstly, you might have seen me tweeting through the week. Our Faces, as a podcast, has had a very successful run lately, it has to be said. So thank you to all of you for that, for downloads and shares and subscribes and everything else. All your normal supportiveness, very much appreciated. New patrons, old patrons, always, always supported. I hope we can gain more and more of you. I hope we can share the podcast more. Had our most successful single day last Wednesday, I think. Had our most successful month easily the month of January and I guess there's still a couple of days left as well it's just soared and I, I know talking numbers and everything like that not everyone likes to do that that's fine 
This is a open fandom podcast, so I'm quite happy to share all this with you. And I don't know what it is, like something like 2,500 for January. Might be more than that. I'd have to check. And we've gone over 13,000 total. I think it's 13,200 when I last checked this morning. So that's obviously amazing. And like I say, I hope that can keep growing. Please do get in touch. Please tell me how you would like that, how you'd like us to improve to get you subscribing. I'm sure some of you see the ratings depending on where you download your podcast from. That would always be appreciated. Reviews. Some of you have written lovely, lovely reviews before. Can't tell you how much that's appreciated. Superb to read them back. And yes, let's just keep going. Second announcement of the day, this coming Thursday, uh, what's that? That will be the 30th. I'll be appearing on the In Deep Geek YouTube channel for a live stream. That'll be, it's 10 o'clock UK time, so I get, what's that, 5 Eastern in America. Uh, I'm sure you're all aware of the channel. It's incredibly popular, there's some great videos, not just Game of Thrones, Westworld. There's Lord of the Rings stuff on there, I'm sure you know. And uh, yeah, I'll be coming on to talk about castles, obviously. You know, you know what I'm good for. Talk about some castles. I'm sure there'll be some other chit chat too. So yeah, do come along and say hello. That'd be lovely. It'd be great to see you. And I'll try not to uh, mess up too much on a live stream as I sometimes want to do. Finally, before we get going today, you might have seen last week on Twitter, I started a new weekly thing, a new weekly question called Pear Pick, in which we take two characters without POV chapters that we would like to have had them through A Song of Ice and Fire, or more to the point, which one, if we had to pick only one of the two. We started off with, or I started off the question with the two Boltons, Ramsey versus Roos, who would we most want to see as a POV character, and well, your decision was pretty conclusive. 87.5% chose Roos, only 125 for Ramsey, so pretty much a landslide for uh, Mr. Vampire there. And fair enough, that makes a lot of sense to me. You could we'd be able to glean a lot more about the planning of the Red Wedding and Roos's kind of calculating evil as opposed to Ramsey's maniacal type. And yeah, I'd love to have seen Roos's interactions with Rob, Roos's interaction with Tywin and Walder, and I would especially enjoy having a Roos POV in Dance with Dragons when he starts to crack under the pressure of everything going on in Winterfell. And a lot of people were kind enough to reply and echo those same statements. So, what about next week then? Well, I can reveal you, pair pick number two, we're keeping it family orientated. We're going into House Mormont. Who would you rather have, a POV of Dior Mormont or a POV of Jorah Mormont? Sorry, Mage, Daisy, Lyanna, all the others. Jorah and Gior this time round. I know who I would rather pick. I'm very interested to see your thoughts. I'll be posting that later on Twitter today, so get voting, get discussing, and uh, we'll post that up for next week's podcast as well. Okay, let's get to it. So today, five chapters. Let me run through what they are for you. There's a lot to get through. There's a really big, big, important chunk. We start with Bran 1 up in the north, up in the journey. We go all the way down to Dragonstone for Davos 2. That is the return to Dragonstone for Davos. We're back in the Riverlands for Jamie 2, followed by Tyrion 2, and then finally Aya 2, where we get to meet the Brotherhood and someone from Aya's past. Rather than make you wait any longer, let's just dive straight into it. We're going to begin with Bran 1. So before I even start today, let me say Aziz has got to even more of my notes than usual somehow. Uh, I don't know how he does it, but it's always very much appreciated. Um, so that's that's lovely. That's always a good boost in my arm. And he actually starts off mentioning my first note about how different the Bran arc is in Storm of Swords compared to Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings. And 
in Storm of Swords, we've got a brand with just four chapters. He's the second to last POV to have an opening chapter. And his final outing, his final POV, comes nearly 25 chapters before the end of the book. So this is very, very different. Yet, personally, this is my favourite brand book out of the bunch. I've never enjoyed his uh, Game or Clash chapters all that much, which I know is a very unpopular opinion. But his short storm arc has so many favourite moments of mine. We've got the little man, his near brush with John, the story of the Night of the Laughing Tree, and my specific favourite, the cold horror potential of the Night Fort. And that's a chapter I, I really can't wait for. It's such a good one. And that's all quite ironic, really, because obviously Brand was Winterfell-centric in the first two books, and I really miss Winterfell. So you would think uh, those two would diverge a bit. But we also get our best ever shot of the Wild North here. The only other time we really spend some significant time there is not until Stannis and co. arrive, but by then it's, too, it's snowing too much to be able to see anything on their march, so that's not that doesn't really count. Bran's arc now is also incredibly different in political surroundings. Bran, he was our Rob Cam. He had to show us Roderick and Lewin trying to keep Winterfell together. He had to overhear all these hints of a widen, of wider northern politics with Hormonds and Mandalays and Boltons that even if he didn't quite understand them, we could gain clues from and understand what was going on. But now in this book, he is nearly completely removed from all of that. He's shut off from the political world he has grown up in. It is that separation that truly allows him to focus on the mystical side of things. But regardless, it is a very different brand that we get here. And it does interest me for, for all the criticism of George's travel log chapters that we get later on with Brienne, etc. Which is something I've never really bought into or had a problem with. Bran's storm chapters, they are travel chapters, but they really get brought up as culprits for that particular critique. So that's quite interesting. So to make the point that this arc is based more in mystics and magic, we begin in Summer's body, and it is a Summer whose thoughts are coming through much clearer than they did before. In Clash of Kings especially, they were kind of mumbled, very animalistic obviously, but not nearly as coherent as they are here. Specifically, I like his rounding up of the pack and where each of them have gone, especially as we have a book now that is more direwolfless than ever. Lady is obviously already gone, now we get no more Shaggy Dog, Grey Wind will play a big part, but we haven't seen him yet, and we're not going to get any ghost until right near the end of the book. So, okay, we have had a quick taste of Nymeria, but, and she will come back later also, but really, we're not getting a lot. It's mainly Summer. And we've got a lot of quotes today, so let me start you with this one, from Summer's mind. Prince, the man sound came into his head suddenly, yet he could feel the rightness of it. Prince of the Green, Prince of the Wolfswood. So the use of the word prince first puts us in the mindset of what Bran was before. He was the prince of Winterfell, the prince to Rob's king. And incidentally, while I'm here, I wonder what happens to the titles once Rob dies. Uh, I wonder what the official or the official line on that is. Who knows? But then that's immediately followed up by Prince of the Green and Prince of the Wolfswood, which instead moves us on to the path of Bran the Warg or Bran the Greenseer. So that's possibly even hinting that he will take up a position of rule within those ancient ranks. And remember, so far, we haven't really been given too much of a hint of Bran's status among the mystical. We've really only dealt with the fact that he's a member of, at all. We don't know the actual setup. So I think this is followed up a few paragraphs later by this quote. And this is Bran talking to Jojen. I was a prince, Jojen, he told the older boy. I was the prince of the woods. You are a prince, Jojen reminded him softly. You remember, don't you? Tell me who you are. We can hardly blame Bran for his preference of being in summer. Not only is there the obvious physical thrill of being able to run and jump and have control over his body, plus the freedom that has been denied him so long, 
We should never forget his beautiful second chapter in Game of Thrones where he so enjoys climbing and the physical feel of it, followed by those multiple chapters explaining his physical and mental tedium. We should not forget how important this is. But aside from all that physical stuff, is the fact that Summer offers the opportunity to not be brand for a little while, and that's completely understandable. Consider how the last year to 18 months have gone in terms of incredibly life-changing events for Bran. He's nearly murdered and becomes disabled. His father is murdered. The majority of his family leaves. His fill-in parents and Lewin and Roderick and everyone else, they're all killed. And his eternal home is burnt with everyone he's ever met, either dead or captured. Much nicer to just disappear into the woods and leave all of that human pain behind for a little while. Summer, being a direwolf, can be the equivalent of a knight among wolves. Bran can live out his dream as Summer, but not as himself. Let's recall that the idea of going too far into a walking in a second skin too long was only introduced in Bran's final chapter of Clash of Kings when we find out he's been in Summer for three days, which seems like a huge dose all at once, so no surprise he's becoming addicted. And I think George is re-establishing that danger for us to set a boundary and let us know Bran's ability is not some all-powerful easy win, it does have a dark side. At the same time as Bran wants to escape his present and, and what's happened recently, he also doesn't want to leave the old days behind. While Jojen is pressing for going further north, Bran internally knows that the further he goes, the less chance he has of regaining that old life and reassembling his status quo. Hence this quote, and this is Bran arguing about where they could go. Or we could steal a boat and sail down the White Knife to White Harbour Town. That fat Lord Manderley rules there. He was friendly at the Harvest Feast. He wanted to build ships. Maybe he built some, and we could sail to River Run and bring Rob home with all his army. So despite all the evidence to the contrary that Bran experienced in Clash, he still wants to believe there is an easy solution around the corner that will bring his family back together and just make everyone happy again. And as he's got to my note about Bran really wanting to contribute something to the stark effort in the war. So the focus of the chapter then switches to the, the new focus of Bran's mission, the Free-Eyed Crow. But as that becomes the subject of conversation, I think the light actually sh shifts more onto Jojen than Bran, as we get our feel, as we get our first real experience of Dark Jojen. He's always been pretty dour. He's always been the little grandfather, but this is something different. He supposedly knows they are now beginning the journey that will end with them arriving at his death, if you want to believe certain theories. That is knowledge hard enough to deal with in the first place, but to have to bear the responsibility of actually having to persuade Bran and Mira to get going, that really does take the biscuit. On top of that, he has to constantly stress about Bran spending too much time in summer and eventually not coming back. If we are talking about Bran feeling like he's failed in his duty to protect Winterfell, like in, in that Aziz note, Jojen is possibly feeling the same weight of keeping the saviour of the human race inside his own head. And I say maybe because we don't actually know what Jojen knows about Bran's place in the endgame, but he definitely knows that he's important and he has some kind of responsibility over him. Also, Jojen is human, he's a teenager, and it's completely right for him to feel some frustration at knowing his own limits while mentoring someone he knows is far beyond him in terms of mystical powers. Hell, Jojen even has to outline to Bran why he's not knowledgeable enough to be the one to teach him. Jojen isn't exactly ambitious or egotistical, but he also, again depending on his dreams, knows he fits into a very niche box of getting Bran where he needs to go and merely introducing him to the ideas of wargs and green seers, while only getting to experience a small percentage of powers himself. That's an incredibly frustrating way to live, especially if, potentially, Jojen already knows there is no possibility of further opportunities, there's no hope to have. Everyone else is blessed with the opportunity to choose to believe anything could happen but not Jojen, and I think if we're honest, if we're in that situation, we would feel very similar feelings. 
And like I say, he's got to a lot of my notes in this chapter, so um, we're actually already whizzed through. We've only got one note left, and it is this. So at the end of the chapter, Bran comes down to make his choice about which way they're going. Are they going to go further north, or are they going to hang around in the actual north? And Bran makes the choice he, they're going to go. But consider, if Bran decides to even delay their chapter, they possibly miss John at Queen, Queen's Crown, and more than likely John will die there and the wall is, is screwed. Or if you want to get really mystical, if Bran hadn't already delayed them to this point, perhaps they leave Queen's Crown too early and John still dies. But that, that's pretty easy to get really lost in conversations such as those, so we should probably just move on. So if Bran 1 is all about leaving civilization and away from the living world, let's talk about someone who is rejoining it in Davos 2. As we discussed last week, Davos went to the end of the human survival spectrum in his first chapter, reduced to rock and rain and sometimes some crab innards. He was already considering himself a dead ghost. Now we have to see his reintroduction into the living world, and it's fitting that his door back into society is via the world he knows best, Seafolk. He's already been sailed along by Captain Corain Safmendez, I think I said that right, and he spent time on a boat, but now he gets to have a real connection with someone who, it seems, is his largest connection to his old life, and that is Salador Stan. That's who he comes to meet in this chapter. Now, Salador, he considers himself a pirate, not a smuggler, but the exact scene we find Salador in is counting spices and taking stock, which must be as familiar a pastime as possible for Davos. So early on in this conversation, Salador mentions that he's been made Lord of Blackwater Bay, but he pokes fun at the title and compares the very thin difference between stopping and raiding a ship as a pirate and stopping and raiding a ship as a, a lord, in quotes. It mixes well with what Davos has recently learned about his own title, the one he gained in order to serve his sons, and the same one that helped lead them to their death. So again, we have the test of Davos having to hold faith in Stannis and not get tempted back to the sea by his old friends. Which does make sense. Davos can get his old life back, he can return to his family, get some money in his pocket, and shrug off the hypocrisy of a lordly life by returning to the old trope of the honest criminal and their own banded together version of honour and loyalty. But Davos has another loyalty he's dedicated his life to, as we saw back on that rock. He believes he got off his little island because of Stannis, because he believes he made oaths yet unfulfilled. And most importantly, he believes Stannis needs him, and he is right. So unfortunately, Salador just can't tempt Davos away just yet. Through both uh, Cofain and Salador, we get to see the devastation of the Blackwater through the lens of the losers. Davos was obviously underwater by the point it all went down, so he didn't really get to see the ending. These guys did. And we've got some more quotes here. Your young Devon was among those we took off at the end. The brave boy never once left the king's side, or so they say. So on the note of Devon surviving, perhaps it doesn't escape Davos's notice that the lone survivor is another Seaworth who maintained his loyalty to Stannis no matter what. Another quote. The river was terrible, Salador San said solemnly. Even from the bay, I was seeing and shuddering. So for all the sing-song, light-hearted way that Salador normally has of speaking, this sentence really hits home. You can tell he's actually genuinely affected by this. And he wasn't even in the battle, really. He was just viewing it from afar. He was just a witness. So the actual nature of it, what it was like to be in it, well, we know how horrible that is already. Another quote from Salador San. Queen Selyse keeps court for him with her uncle, the Lord Alistair, who is naming himself the Hand. The king's seal she has given to this uncle, to fix the letters he writes, even to my pretty parchment. This is a bit of a throwaway line on the first read, but now we know that Alistair's freedom and autonomy, or rather his taking advantage of Stannis looking the other way, are exactly what gets him into trouble later on, and eventually gets him burned. 
Aziz got to my note on the, on the Florence taking advantage of Stannis again looking the other way and not really um, fulfilling his duties. So I move on to Davos hearing about Melisandre burning people at will. I mean, you combine that with his own confidence that she is responsible for the wildfire and the death of his sons. It makes it easy to now really buy into her being the big bad beast that is responsible for all of Stannis's failings and why the previously teeming Dragonstone is now barren and empty. Right back at the beginning of the chapter, Davos notices this, quote, A pale grey wisp of smoke blew from the top of the mountain to mark where the island lay. Dragonmont is restless this morning, Davos thought, or else Melisandre is burning someone else, end quote. So that smoke, to me, is almost to say Melisandre has planted her own flag on Dragonstone and is basically in charge now. While it's easy to join in with painting Melisandre as definitely evil in this moment, it's not true for rereaders. That's more of a first-time read, first reader thing. We have the benefit of later Davos chapters and Melisandre's own chapter, as well as endorsement from George himself, naming her one of the most misunderstood characters. We know she actually is loyal to Stannis and intends to help the human race survive, no matter the cost. It's quite important. And she also had nothing to do with the wildfire, so while we can certainly appreciate where Davos is coming from, we also have to disconnect and see where his emotions have led him to an incorrect conclusion so far. The discussion on Melisandre continues between Davos and San Lorsan, and the survivor's guilt, an idea that Davos lived by divine intervention that we discussed last week, is so present that even Davos has fully realised it. First, there is this quote. She will sing, and you will scream, and then you will die, and you have only just come back to life. And this is why, said Davos, to do this thing, to make an end of Melisandre of Versailles and all her works. Why else would the sea have spit me out? And then that is followed by this. The mother, she blessed me with seven sons, and yet I let them burn her. She spoke to me. We called the fire, she said. We called the shadows too. I rode Melisandre into the bowels of Storm's End and watched her birth a horror. So, firstly, Davos is explaining what we surmised last time, that the chances of being found and rescued were so slim that he believes the gods must have intervened, and he therefore needs to complement that by honouring them with some kind of mission. And that directly links into the second quote and survivor's guilt. To Davos, it is completely unfair that he lived while thousands, and specifically his sons, died. To say it is mere chance that saved his life and ended others is too much to bear, that's too much guilt. Add all of that onto Davos connecting the loss and wildfire with Melisandre, and he has the guilt of not standing up and trying to stop her like his brave friend Crescent did. In Davos's mind, this makes him guilty of the Blackwater, guilty of the death of his own sons. His punishment, or his task, is to do what he should have done first and kill the woman he believes to be sin made flesh. But Salador San correctly points out that this has nearly a 0% chance of a happy ending whether Davos can kill her or not. He will likely end up with a painful death. But then we find Davos actually agrees. He completely doubts Melisandre can be killed by conventional methods and believes he will probably perish. But he's going to run the risk anyway because at least such an end would make more sense to his guilt-ridden mind. And to be fair, the man was starving just a few days ago. But all of that unfortunately doesn't persuade Davos to change his mind so we can understand why Salador gets a bit pissed and sends Davos on his way. And the second half of the chapter sees Davos go back up to the ghost town that is the castle of Dragonstone, where defeat and its effects can be seen on every face. In such a short time, so much has changed that Davos's feeling of being a spectre returned to life intensifies. I do find it very fitting that Davos first comes across Patchface, someone else who the sea has returned, and is therefore able to compare his own foolhardy mission to Patchface's apparently mad ramblings which this time round signifies the Red Wedding, as Aziz spoke about. But all of you are far more eagle-eyed than me if you saw that the first time round. More importantly, Edric Storm comes running up next. 
And I have to admit, on my first couple of reads, I really didn't grasp Edric's importance to Davos' arc and his value as a character himself. I just didn't bother thinking on him all that much at all, to be honest. His introduction is placed here to provide the signal there is an alternative purpose for Davos being kept alive. The kindest, noblest act of Davos's arc in this book is saving Edric's life from a horrible death. Though I have to say I am very relieved that Davos does this because he believes it is the right thing to do and doesn't go down the route of merely doing it to pay the gods back or get rid of his guilt. That's not He's not just trying to save himself from bad feelings here. He's doing it because it's right. This is also an incredibly important act to keep Stannis a bit closer to the light side and not spin entirely into Melisandre's control. But obviously far more importantly, it keeps Edric alive. And that's a good thing. Like as he, I think as he's mentioned that I think Hedrick can be the perfect mix of copper, steel and iron that is the three Baratheon brothers. The majority of him is Robert, obviously, that being his father. But we will come to see how adoring Edric is of Robert's legacy, and the smart bunny is on the boy wanting to become very skilled at arms as he grows. He is charming as both Robert and Renly were, and he instantly tries to help Davos when he realises he is sick, proving that he can have Stannis' in- interest in what's right and what isn't, while also having more of a human side. And that's already Davos too. again, as he's getting to my notes, just like I like. So we're going to move back now from one night to another to Jamie too. This is a long old chapter of a lot to unpack, that's for sure. So let's begin with the fact that, that Jamie doesn't trust Brienne. Brienne doesn't trust Jamie, And Cleos apparently doesn't have a clue. What's the best remedy? Chuck them in a place where they can't trust anyone they meet and where Cleos still doesn't have a clue. That place is an inn, specifically the Inn of the Needing Man, which we know is famous across Westeros, and we can likely assume it does a decent trade given that his- that history plus its location. Also, Cleos tells us as much, so we know that. Yet the war has left it empty. The building itself is unchanged, the wings still extend out into the water, same as always, but human attitude has changed of the recent horrors. As Jamie notes, there's no smoke in the chimney or light in the windows, and for an inn that depends on passing footfall, this is a huge please go away sign basically. And what reason could an inn want such a thing other than knowing that every visitor brings danger? I guess it's fitting that they've come to this inn where a king of the north once bowed to one of the Iron Throne. And now here we are in the middle of a war between a king of the north and one that sits at the Iron Throne. But speaking of history and former lives, I wonder if Jamie stayed here before and, and saw not only the inn in its full peacetime glory, we experienced it as a young, famous Jamie Lannister, who was probably fawned over as soon as he stepped across the threshold. Now it is empty, Jamie is in chains, and much has changed. But that's assuming he ever stayed there. To look at our maps, it's not a thousand miles on Castle Rock, but it is too far north to be a stop on the many journeys between the rock and the capital. The most likely time would probably be after Jamie was sent to River Run, but the River Road does run straight out of Castle Rock, and that's the road that this inn is on. So it's entirely possible Jamie has come this way several times, who knows. Let's start with a quote here. Without waiting for an answer, Jamie went clinking down the dock, put a shoulder to the door, shoved it open, and found himself eye to eye with a loaded crossbow. So immediately, we're moving suggested symbols of please go away to very, very direct ones. Currently, Jamie is still too proud and arrogant to even entertain the idea a child could very easily have killed him with a pulled trigger, and that the fact he is Jamie Lannister would not have mattered in the slightest and would not have saved him. More so, this is a continuation of the change the Riverlands has gone through in the war. Everything expected of an inn is gone, and prospective patrons now have to face a crossbow bolt and an interrogation, because all the rules of society have been rendered useless by Tywin's campaign. And again, I just have to think, if Jamie has been here before, he probably got a very different welcome, you would guess. Also, the child with this crossbow 
has obviously been hardened enough by war that Jamie's taunt of it being a coward's weapon has zero effect on him. Such worries are probably a far-off memory for him by now, and we actually learn later his mother was taken by the bloody mummers. After that, no one gives a toss what kind of weapon you've got. You just take one. Now, there's a big long scene of uh, Jamie, Brienne and Cleos talking to this innkeeper on the boy. I won't go through all of that, but learning about the quote-unquote innkeep and crossbow boy is a nice summary of the societal chaos going on all over the Riverlands. This is a mishmash family, as it is a mishmash ownership of an inn. None of it is really real, and it's just a result of people trying to find something to cling on to in the aftermath of war. This isn't actually their inn. Crossbow boy isn't actually his son. There's also no time for romantic ideals or being a Robin Hood-type bunch of peasants. They don't care for who's who in the war, they don't care who had the inn before, and they don't care about any of those pre-mentioned rules. Because there simply isn't time to. They have to care about survival and nothing else. Here's a quote. Did you kill them? Would I tell you if I did, the man spat? Likely a wolves work, or maybe lions. What's the difference? So this especially lends itself to our previous conversations in the first two books about the small folks being the ones to suffer so much they don't even bother to check which of the game's players are screwing them over. It doesn't matter, it's the same result for them. The quote-unquote innkeep obviously raises the hackles of both Jamie's group and the reader because he talks in such a direct, odd way. He doesn't trust any of them, he is also clear not to be trusted himself, and almost seems to play on it. A virtuous Robin Hood type this is certainly not, as we said. And yet we know from rereading the short-tongued innkeep and his crossbow boy are part of the people protected by or involved with the Brotherhood Without Banners, as we'll come to in Aya's chapter. So we'll be meeting them in a little bit. We need to get introduced to their fairly murky morals and the real humanity of these people they deem worthy of protection. Point being, acting noble doesn't get you protection, just not being part of the nobility does. And that is not to say Innkeep and Crossbow Boy are truly bad in any way, they've just been through hell and reacted how anyone would, hence why the Brotherhood still takes them beneath their non-banner. Next on the uh, suspicious list from the Innkeep, he mentions these horses that have come wandering up from some battle or something, he claims. And I guess if that was to be true, they'd probably be Bracken horses. Stonehenge seems to be the closest fighting to uh, the Inn of the Cross, the Inn of the Kneeling Man. But wherever, the innkeeper's being super weird about selling them. We should think he'd leap at the chance for, so again, the reader's hackles go up. After all, we've been through Aya chapters, we know the kind of danger that can be lurking in these parts. And to really clamp down on the idea of everything changing, we're introduced to the idea that money isn't even worth anything anymore. While it can obviously buy things that help with survival, that transition simply isn't quick enough anymore. It can't be eaten, it can't block a sword, it can't hide people or spirit them away. Hence, it doesn't fit into the nothing-but-survival mindset that Riverlanders have to have now. And I have to wonder if the long-term effects of this huge blow to economy will ever be explored in detail. And they probably will, if I had to put money on it. After the conversation with the innkeep and crossbow boy, we get the chance to enjoy seeing Brienne have the opportunity to show off her chops by giving her reasons for knowing that the innkeep was trying to send them into the arms of the Brotherhood. Or in the arms of someone, anyway. I guess she doesn't know it's the Brotherhood just yet. We get to see that she's smart, she's insightful, and although she doesn't need to earn Jamie's respect, she unknowingly does here. Unfortunately, rereading robs us of being able to enjoy the moment too much, because we know Brienne's choice to avoid the brothers only hands them to the mummers later on, who are indisputably about a thousand times worse. And I think maybe Aziz mentioned that that potential of being captured by the Brotherhood instead really gets you thinking on what could have happened. The Red Wedding hasn't happened yet, so either they let Cleos go or they ransom him, for Jamie, his crimes are obviously well known and he'd likely be sentenced to death. 
At best, he gets to fight Beric, so who knows what happens there, but it would definitely be enjoyable to see. And I also wonder if someone in the Brotherhood argues Jamie is simply too, too valuable to execute and can be used one way or the other to end the war more quickly. But Brienne is more interesting, as the general rumour is that she murdered Renly, and a lot of these guys are still pretty hot on the Baratheons. I suppose, as that happened so far away, I wasn't witnessed by anyone so far as we know, Brienne is actually the more likely to face a trial by combat. So very, very interesting. But even more intriguing is if the part of the Brotherhood that finds Arya and friends then meets up with those who capture Jaime and Brienne. Imagine Jaime and Brienne walking in just as Harwin outs Arya as Arya Stark of Winterfell. That gives Brienne one hell of a quandary. Does she continue with Jaime, try and get Arya out and back to Riverrun? That would be very fascinating to see. Let's move the conversation back to Jamie himself. We haven't really spoken about him yet in his own chapter. Unfortunately, two chapters isn't enough to provide us with a Jamie we'd want to be friends with. He's still a horrible bully to Brienne, still very sexist, and still makes more than one reference to wanting to murder her. What seems to bother him the most in this chapter is that anyone, especially Brienne, would dare to judge him, even though she knows more bad things about him than most already. And that's very similar to how he thinks about Catelyn when she dared to judge him in that previous chapter. And we have this quote, He was tired of being disregarded by this huge ugly cow of a woman. And that's all quite odd really, considering that his ultimate goal is getting back to Cersei, and that's perfectly aligned with Brienne's goal of delivering him to King's Landing. It's purely the fact that he's not completely under his own control that annoys Jamie. and even when he mentally compliments her, he has to throw in a barb or two as well, when he mentally compliments Brienne, I mean. We have another quote. What a wretched creature this one is. She reminded him of Tyrion in some queer way, though at first blush two people could scarcely be any more dissimilar. Now this is such good analysis by Jamie. I'm wondering if he should start his own podcast perhaps. Tyrion and Brienne are perfectly placed as kindred souls trapped in bodies they aren't quite comfortable with and wrestling with expectations placed on them through no fault of their own. The obvious difference is that Brienne has supreme physical skills that Tyrion would die for, but we know her skill doesn't automatically make all other problems go away, in the same way that Tyrion's brain can't replace his issues with his own physicality. In his last chapter, Jamie tried comparing Brienne to Cersei and didn't get anywhere. Instead, he now compares her to Tyrion, telling us he does know the value of someone's inner self something he will come to see more and more of Brienne as he goes, even if he can never put it in so many words. Now, if you remember, Brienne nearly labels herself a son when she's speaking to Jamie. She kind of stumbles a bit. It's another intriguing and almost heartbreaking moment that really gives us a window into Brienne's complicated relationship with her own gender and the expectations of her father, along with the difficulty of being an only child, which, to be fair, is a virtual rarity in the Westerosi world that we know. We're going to get much more on this once we finally get her own POV, but even now we can see these issues are not fully resolved within Brienne, whether it's a desire to fulfil her father's dreams, perhaps identifying as male, or merely associating being male with her desire to become a knight. The intricate web of possibilities is far outside my scope here, I'll be honest. And though Jamie jumps on the verbal slip like any well-trained bully would, Brienne still doesn't snap. As we discussed last time, she has the patience of a saint, and sadly, I have to conclude it's probably just because she's so used to this kind of insult by now. But Renly is a different matter. That is recent, that is raw, and it hits on two different levels. First is Brienne's love for Renly, and she obviously greatly grieves for him, and is horrified anyone might suggest she killed her love. But I think the greater layer is that of her duty as a knight. Brienne was a member of the Rainbow Guard, and her king died on her watch. Considering how much harder she had to strive to get to that position, and how seriously she takes her vows, she hates the idea that she failed, but there's also the public shame as we see here. Yes, and what you did as well. We're both Kingslayers here, if what I've heard is true. I never harmed Renly. I'll kill the man who says I did. 
So the crux of the relationship between Jamie and Brienne at this point, from her side, is that she is horrified people might suddenly equate her with Jamie as a kindred kingslayer. Jamie's apparent breaking of oaths and vows, his disregard for honour, is as repugnant as it comes for Brienne, and now she's suddenly being labelled as the same type of person. It's horrific for her. Talk of broken oaths and kingslaying naturally points Jamie back to his old days, and the fascinating conclusion that the white cloak soiled him, not the other way around. For a little while, he teeters around being honest and just spilling the beans to Brienne, an incredibly useful conversation that could teach her the difficulty of keeping an oath while also deciding between right and wrong, something Brienne will need to know come Feast for Crows. But instead, he keeps everything internal for now. One of the biggest revelations of this chapter ending is that Jamie became a member of the Kingsguard because of Cersei. While he might have thought or dreamt about it over his youth, it seems he had no particular desire until it became Cersei's specific desire. This is the beginning of our discovery that Cersei has been abusing Jamie via their relationship through most of their lives. She has controlled and manipulated him until she got what she wanted and everything else be damned. Though, as Tyrion succinctly notes on the show, Jamie knew exactly what she was doing and went along with it anyway, so he's not completely innocent either. There's several takeaways from this little passage. Firstly, as mentioned, just the idea that there really hasn't been a break from these two putting themselves above everything else and having a desire to be together that rises above all logic. It doesn't. That's not a new thing come Game of Thrones. They've been doing it their whole lives, is what we discover here. Secondly, Jamie mentioned mere moments ago that he earned every honour given to him, but now he privately remembers that actually Cersei got him the position because there happened to be an opening, and more than anything, because Ares wanted to stick it to Tywin. We would be mad not to think the knowledge that his greatest honour is actually related to his father more than him doesn't rot Jamie from the inside. And speaking of Tywin, can we take a moment to imagine the rage he must have felt when he heard the word? He had planned everything out. He was working on getting Cersei married to Rhaegar, or maybe Viserys, and he was very, very close to getting Jamie wed to Lysa Tully. And we should not discount what a big deal that would have been. If the Lannisters and Tullys became blood-tied, that forms an awfully large power block in the centre of the continent. Vastly resourceful and a real problem if Tywin ever wished to make it so. Or to look at it another way, the Lannisters would have then been tied into the Tully, Stark and maybe Arryn trio that was forming and they wouldn't have been left on a limb so much during the rebellion. But then Tywin hears his heir has joined the Kingsguard, his plans are in tatters and he can no longer pass Castle Rock to Jaime and probably most enraging of it all means he now needs Tyrion. Even if at this point Tywin had decided Tyrion would never get Castle Rock, Tyrion would have been about 8 this time. He is suddenly a minus one son, so he cannot so easily cast the other aside. And I like that this revelation is placed so close to Tyrion 1, where Tyra reminds us how the rage at Tyrion the heir has never left him. And I think as he's got to my note about Tyrion just having to suffer because of his children over and over again. And there's also this idea that Jaime blames Cersei in some way, perhaps subconsciously, for screwing him out of Cassidy Rock and his inheritance, while simultaneously taking herself away from him and leaving him in the most scarring situation of his entire life, I think as he might have mentioned that. This label of the Kingslayer and all the horrors that Jamie had to witness came about because Cersei arranged it all. And again, let's not excuse Jamie's own consenting to the plan just because Cersei flashed a smile and played dress-up for him. But yet, he never seems to frame it this way that it's Cersei's fault. But I do think this will occur, likely internally, later on in this book, when Jamie returns to King's Landing and finds that Cersei blames him for leaving her in the city alone for so long, when to him... That's exactly what she did 19 years before. We spoke last week about what a treat it is to be given a POV with an intimate knowledge of Robert's Rebellion and who played a part in the formation of the Seven Kingdoms as we know them. Well, we've only had to wait two chapters for that to pay off because at the close of this chapter, Jamie shifts from the memory of his relationship with his sister and instead lays out one of the most important moments in history on a platter for us. 
It's very difficult to remember this moment as a first-time reader because we get so much information about, about the specifics later on. Jamie doesn't mention the wildfire here or what Ares has been doing to Ayala. We only have the vague idea about Rickard and Brandon's death. In this, as it's presented, Jamie seems to want to kill Ares because he is loyal to his father and because Ares is a weak, unworthy man. And again, we've no idea just how unworthy just yet. It seems Jamie can't even bring himself to confront those particular reasons and memories in the safety of his own mind and we have to wait for Fever to tease it out of him later on. I wonder about the significance of Jamie wearing golden arm instead of the white in his memory. The reference to it here seems to suggest that this is maybe the first time he did so. Possibly that's why he kept up the practice in the years after, to remind, to remind him of the choice he made. Obviously there was some part of him that knew he was selling his order and his name before he went to kill Ares. Maybe. Maybe I'm looking into it too much there. I've also never noticed before that he lays his bloodied sword across the lap while waiting for Ned. Is that a coincidence, or does Jamie know exactly what that would mean to a Northman? And we end with this. You had no right to judge me either, Stark. In his dreams, the dead came burning, gowned in swirling green flames. Jamie danced around them with a golden sword, but for every one he struck down, two more arose to take his place. So the chapter is bunched together with Jamie's aforementioned hatred of being judged by anyone, perhaps because deep down, he does still hold on to the fact he broke his oaths and does deserve to be judged, and also because Jamie is still a Lannister and the pride lives within him as it only can with lions. But we also get this little tidbit at the end, this juicy morsel of swirling green flames and dead men, and now we are left to wonder whether Jamie is dreaming of what could have been in terms of King's Landing burning or what will come to be with the rising dead. So like I say, big old chapter in two pretty distinct halves there, and I wasn't really a fan of the first part of this chapter at the inn, but the second half with the memories of Cersei and of Ares, that is absolute gold. So now we go from one gold to another as we travel back to King's Landing for Tyrion 2. My reread realization of this chapter, we get an early reminder of there being secret tunnels in the Red Keep, something we'll get reminded of again later on before those tunnels get used to an extreme degree during Tyrion's escape. All oh, these layers of foreshadowing, George really can put it on, can't he? I've always wondered if Tyrion wants to find the past so he can use them and regain power that way or just be aware of them so that he can defend against being spied on. I always assumed it was the latter, but the first is just as possible. And the beginning of this chapter is Tyrion giving the idea of trying to look for these passages while misdirecting that he's just, he's just searching for papers. And it's a very hand-Tyrion thing to do, and it's our largest signal yet that Tyrion is on his way to recovery. Tyrion's assessment that Varys has spies in Old Town makes me think that he surely must do in Highgarden also, especially given what a hotbed of politics and intrigue that place is and doubly so if he is aware of the friends in the Reach that may come into use once fake Aegon makes his way over. Regardless, if Varys does have good knowledge of the Tyrells, I wonder how much he's been preparing given how obvious it is that the Tyrells have people to slot into their given positions. And it's also pretty mental that they were very close to having another member in a small council position as Tyrion and Varys discuss uh, the Grand Maester position here. So bonus question, if the Tyrells hadn't raised a fuss, did Tywin have someone else in mind to replace Pycelle? And if so, who? How would that benefit them? An extra bonus question. What would a Pycelle who's been made aware that he's been dumped by his beloved Tywin actually look like? And what would he do? He is a pretty knowledgeable guy, you know. I'm sure he could be of use to someone or other. The conversation switches from possible Grand Maesters to former Kingsguard. Varys gives this quote on Sir Mandon Moore. Why, even his brothers of the Kingsguard never warmed him. Sir Barristan was once heard to say that the man had no friend but his sword, and no life but duty. But you know, I do not think Selmy meant it altogether as praise. 
So you you know something's up with someone if Sir Barry Selmy is saying you are too interested in the job. That's quite alarming. But all we really know from the paragraph on Amanda Moore is that we know nothing. Even with the collective power of the fandom, this is one of those few mysteries that we're really no closer to knowing the truth about as we were 20-odd years ago at publication. There's vague connections we can make. Yes, he's from the Vale, same as Peter Baelish. Barry notes him as having zero desire, so perhaps he was just simply following orders. But then does that link him to Cersei or Joffrey? There's really nothing, but that doesn't mean it doesn't naturally continue to dominate Tyrion's mind. Perhaps that is the point. An unsolvable mystery for the smartest man in town. A true barrier to Tyrion's mind, and one that drives him into his own misery as the story progresses. I don't believe Tyrion even thinks of Mandon Mormont once he gets into Dance of Dragons, but we can trace a lot of his future to this unanswered question. From former Kingsguard to new Kingsguard, as Tyrion talks to Varys about the Kettleblacks. And he learns, kind of to his horror, that Cersei is hinting at uh, sexual favours for the Kettleblacks, I think, as he's mentioned. And in something like a thousand chapters from now, Tyrion is going to spitefully tell Jamie the same information in order to hurt him. And Jamie will subsequently repeat that information to himself again and again in Feast, until he makes the decision to abandon Cersei to her fate with the Faith. All because of this exchange of information here with Varys. And again, this is the kind of layers that make George's work and structure absolutely incredible to think about. And we have to wonder what Cersei's objective is in recruiting the Kettleblacks in this manner. Why is there this need to step up from the money day from the money-based deal with before, especially when they're also collecting titles, let's not forget. Is it just wanting an expansive network of her own? Then again, she doesn't have a Ned to battle. Her father is in town to protect her, and Tyrion is in his least threatening position since he arrived, so it just doesn't make too much sense about what her motiv- motivation would be at this time, because it doesn't really seem to matter if she loses them. As it happens, Cersei will put the brothers to good use when she inherits Tywin's power and needs some muscle in her various dealings, but she was not to know that at this time. Is it merely that Lancel is out of the picture and she still wants to feel sexually desired? It certainly can't be ruled out. Yet, as we readers know, promises and teases will only go so far. One day in the future, Cersei will have to pay up in this dangerous game she has started. And like I said, even Tyrion consents this is a super bad idea, even at this early stage. Moving on from Varys, the chapter swerves to Tyrion on his own, and thinking more towards Shay. And we have this quote. It doesn't matter, he told himself as he waited for moonrise. Whatever you wear, you're still a dwarf. You'll never be as tall as that knight on the steps. So for the first time, Tyrion is forced to really address the fact he's lost everything he wanted in being the Hand. And a bit earlier on, he flatly accuses Tywin of having stolen the position from him, clearly indicating that building frustration that will be let out at book's end. And this loss brings renewed anger with his own appearance and disability. With his power gone, that's all he is left with. Plus, he's just had Varys remind him of how conspicuous he is, and it bothers him as much as it ever has. His jealousy of the body of the guard is the kind of thing we've already spoken about many times before in terms of his self-hatred, the belief that he is unlovable, and its inevitable complications with Shay. I mean, jealousy really is a strong theme through this chapter, it has to be said. Next up is Tyrion meeting with Loras. So Loras is getting some early pub here in this book. He's been seen twice now. And we have this line. Is that from a song? Tyrion cocked his head, smiling. And this is in reference to Loras saying that once the sun sets, no candle can match it. So even Tyrion senses that this is an absolutely killer quote. I'll be honest, I didn't even explicitly remember it was Tyrion who heard this line from Loras, and I forgot about this short meeting between the two, which is a shame because it's a great mirror to Loras's later meeting with the other Lannister brother later on in the book. And on rereading it, something becomes clear. Despite Jaime being the essential blueprint that Loras has based himself on and all their similarities, Tyrion is the one he's actually more honest with and very nearly gets a connection with. 
The conversation actually goes pretty smoothly from Tyrion's end, considering Loras is absolutely the kind of man he was incredibly jealous of just a minute ago, and maybe that's because he specifically reminds him of Jamie, and thus is easier to talk to as Jamie experienced with Brienne in the previous chapter. And I think as he's mentioned, the main of the talk is consisting of Tyrion being genuinely confused why Loras would be so hasty to give up all the benefits that Tyrion's own physicality denies him. The first given reason about Aemon the Dragon Knight and Jamie Lannister himself doesn't land, because Tyrion has no reason to deify people in whose footsteps he can follow, and his mind is too suspicious and cynical to allow him to do so anyway. But the reason of love almost results in a second where the two men understand each other perfectly, for Tyrion has also lost his true love, a true love he is not even allowed to fully share of the world, and know something of what Loras is feeling. Instead, Loras puts up his armour, as Tyrion has been doing his whole life. Again, George with the perfect alignment of chapters. A minute ago we had Jamie remembering how he gave up everything for love, now we have Loras saying essentially the same thing but from the reverse. He is joining the Kingsguard because his love is gone and there's nothing that interests him otherwise, just as Jamie was not interested in his own inheritance or potential luck with other ladies. For my money, this is one of the best sequences we ever get with Loras. Compared with his earlier scene with Sansa, we can piece together what is probably one of the most heartbroken characters in all the series, coming to terms with a world only filled by unequal candles. And then just like that, we're back in Shay time. Like in Clash, I'm not particularly fond of the Shea scenes, which it seems like there are way too many of throughout this book. Having said all that, I really didn't realise how much Tysha stuff we got out of Shea in, in Clash of Kings, so perhaps I'm being too harsh. All I know is I think there's a tad too much of it in this book, like I say, but this is our first instance, so I should give it its due. Again, the theme of jealousy returns with Tyrion seeing Shea interact with another male, and he focuses in on that male's physique. So we've got Tyrion accusing Tyrion of actually stealing his office and then him being jealous of Shay being with someone else. I'm sure those two things won't intersect at all later on, I'm pretty sure. But first, like the last time out, Tyrion makes it clear he is aware of the danger, the stupidity of the relationship, and that ultimately he can't bring himself to let his brain win this round. He is desperate for Shay's love and affection, to have someone desire him and be affectionate with him, no matter how fake he really knows it is. And if there's any internal argument about the fact about that fact, Shay gives Tyrion plenty of ammo to realise what it is she's after from the relationship, namely what was promised to her in the first place. We have these two quotes. Firstly, Will my lord give me back my jewels and silks now? I asked Varys if I could have them when you were hurt in the battle, but he wouldn't give them to me. What would have become of them if you'd died? And then later that's followed by, You promised you'd move me into a manse again after the battle. So if Tyrion could let his mind back in front, he may take this as evidence the relationship has run its course and they can now go their separate ways with heads still on shoulders because it's quite clear Tyrion himself is not what Shay values in the equation. And that doesn't vilify her in the slightest. She's only asking for the deal that was made in the first place and she's certainly played her part. Aside from the fact I think it's a bad idea for Shay to so blatantly point out she was only worried about her jewels during the Blackwater, a battle where Tyrion bled for the city itself, She's doing nothing wrong by trying to look out for herself. Then again, wanting to attend the wedding as a lady may be a step too far. It steps up the danger, it muddies the water of what payments she's supposed to receive, but again we can't blame her for wanting to climb the societal ladder, even though this may not be the best route. But again, it all ends up with Tyrion failing to think. I'll give you another quote. Just keep me, my lion, and keep me safe. I shall, he promised. Fool, fool, the voice inside him screamed. Why did you say that? You came here to send her away. Instead, he kissed her once more. So Tyrion is literally telling himself this is fake, that he came to save her, that he cannot do this, and yet he ignores himself completely. Because of the jealousy, because Tyrion needs a win, 
because he can't lose that beloved position and his love, quote-unquote, too. Again, I'm sure they won't intersect. And because he is human. He wants love, physical touch. He wants to prove he can be loved, even when he's the one who insists he, he can't. Tyrion isn't experiencing any emotion that anyone else doesn't feel. He's just doing it with the knowledge that it isn't real, and that he may be writing a death sentence for one of the only things he has left in the world. That is Tyrion 2, all wrapped up. And that is four chapters down. We've got one to go, and we're heading back into the Riverlands for Aya 2. I think we can forgive anyone for forgetting the details in Aya 1, because it was a fairly empty chapter in terms of plot advancement, but that is not an accusation we can lay at Aya 2's feet. We get to take huge strides in both the plot of Aya and the Riverlands when we finally get introduced to an elusive, near-mystical Brotherhood Without Banners, and more importantly for our purposes, possibly the largest development for Aya since she left King's Landing, or at least since Yorin died, when she is formally recognised as Aya Stark again. Whilst looking ahead and chopping up which chapters are coming, I realise that we actually get way more page time of Aya and the Brotherhood than I realised. More than with Yorin, or even at Harrenhal, and I'm going to guess more than Bravos. So this introduction is obviously pretty important. The chapter opens in a near-identical place into today's Jamie chapter, with another rehashing of new rule of the Riverlands. There's property, the owner is dead, therefore whatever's left is up for grabs. To be fair, Aya and co aren't trying to move in and run this farm for themselves, they are just incredibly hungry and obviously not going to waste the opportunity for survival. If the social structure hadn't broken down so far, perhaps Aya reconsiders the stealing, but hunger is hunger and veggies are veggies. Naturally, Aya and the others instantly think of Roose Bolton and the Bloody Mummers when they hear voices coming their way, and who can blame them? There is horror for miles and miles around, how lucky would it be to be found by someone who doesn't want to do them harm in some way? But as Aya keenly notes, Boltons and Mummers probably aren't going to be singing or whistling. Their luck seems to be in, though not before the Brotherhood make it clear that they are in charge, and Aya's bunch should indeed consider themselves lucky. Most of this persuasion is done via showing off exactly how Angai won the Archer's tourney back in Game of Thrones. And they also have this interaction very early on. Could be a wolf, maybe a lion. With four feet, you think? Or two? Makes no matter, does it? So that's almost a near repeat of exactly what we hear in Jamie's chapter. And again, it's the idea that it doesn't matter what side you're on, really. Everyone is a potential enemy in this land. And I think as these got to my note on, these guys go back to the Inn of the Kneeling Man, but they see something very different. For Aya, the Inn is somewhere safe. The safest place probably since the small hall of the Tower of the Hand. It's got food. There's even another woman there to put her at ease around all these men. In fact, she soon discovers it's the woman who's running the show. And although very different physically... Shana reminds me a bit too much of poor Masha Heddle and how she ended up, so the proposed safety doesn't seem that set to me. But it is incredible for these three poor children who have seen the very worst humanity has to offer. Before they arrive at the inn, Tom even asks Gendry if he's forgotten what friends are, and you realise that yes, they probably have. There's even a fellow orphan, who we were calling Crossbow Boy a minute ago, which Aya essentially is in this situation, she is essentially an orphan, being taken care of and looked after, and it's another ho- sign of hope for Aya, Gendry and Hot Pie after all they've seen. Again, this is the place trying to retake the ideas of society by providing care for those who can't, which in theory should be the role of the lead lords, but obviously that's gone now. And I don't think this care of the orphan boy is lost on any of the three, as even though it'll be Hot Pie who ends up staying on to become boy number two, Gendry is the one who will take on a similarly protective role of other orphan children at the Inn of the Crossroads in Feast for Crows. Let's have this quote from when they're still on their way to the inn. Hot Pie joined in lustily, even bouncing in his saddle a little on the rhymes. Aya stared at him in astonishment. He had a good voice, and he sang well. He never did anything well, except bake. 
So like I say, this actually takes place while they're still going to the inn, but it's a great example of George just hinting at humanization for Hot Pie and for his main skill, which will come up again once they do get to the inn. We have another quote about Hot Pie once they get there. You can eat it or go hungry, said husband. Do I look like some bloody baker? I'd like to see you make better. I could, said Hot Pie. It's easy. You needed the dough too much. That's why it's so hard to chew. He took another sip of his ale and began talking lovingly of breads and pies and tarts, all the things he loved. Aya rolled her eyes. So we have to wait another chapter for Hot Pie to announce he's staying behind, but again George just leaves us all the ingredients here. We'll speak of it more in Aya 3, I'm sure, but you have to be pretty happy for him. The chances of him surviving this long were a billion to one, and he's not only found safety but somewhere he can do something he loves and is good at it, hence George highlighting him a few times here in this chapter. The conversation over what should have happened with Jamie and Brienne being stopped and their horses retaken raises some interesting discussions. As Aya immediately notes upon hearing this, she is surrounded by outlaws, and outlaws of a system. They, as much as anyone else, are playing on the desperation of Riverlanders by putting up a front as an inn and then sending people off to be robbed so the cycle can begin again. It makes you wonder what would have happened to Aya and the others if they'd all been ten years older when they'd been found. As it is, the Brotherhood still have a moral compass in wanting to help children, calling in the other side of the argument, which has these got to about, is it good that they rob because they are robbing to look after children and look after the people who can't help themselves. So that's fair enough. This also brings up Aya thinking about what side these men represent, because to her this is still a case of bad guys versus good guys, even if these waters muddy more each day. Luckily, this has already been discussed earlier on in the chapter. We have this quote, We're nobody's men. Whose men are you? Angai the archer said, We're king's men. Aya frowned. Which king? King Robert, said Lem, in his yellow cloak. So the Brotherhood have a handy little excuse of, le- of leaning on a now non-existent third party so they can refrain from taking sides. And I personally believe this is one of the hardest things to accept within Storm of Swords on the first couple of reads, that the Brotherhood without banners are not a pro-Stark force that simply aren't on the payroll. As readers, we equate Starks with good and Brotherhood with good. And some of that is due to the e- earlier easy comparison to them as many merry men, we all love an underdog after all, and they certainly lack power hunger or politics or mostly of the bullshit of the great houses, so we want to lump them all together, especially that many of them were originally sent out by Eddard and will eventually come to be led by Catelyn. At this moment in time, they are neutral. We have to remember that, hence they're relying on Robert's name. Which is ironic on two sides, in that Robert semi-contributed to the situation and certainly wouldn't have been interested in the Brotherhood unless it meant for more fighting for him. And secondly, Lem Lemoncloak is the one to say Robert's name when he's probably the least infused of lining up with the former king. But I think fighting for Robert isn't supposed to be about fighting for the man as much as it is the time in which Robert ruled when there was stability and structure. And whatever complaints we have about Robert, his rule was 90% peacetime, so you can't argue with that. And all that was before everyone tried to screw the common person over in the hope of gaining a crown. Even these distinctions are muddy though. The Brotherhood have fought against Gregor and other Lannisters because Beric and company are smart enough to know that they are the root cause of the devastation. And if we were to sit them all down and ask who is ro- who is worse, Rob or Tywin, we would likely get a definite answer. But that doesn't serve their purposes here. There's no use walking into a village burnt and abused by Northmen, preaching about how it's already some boy king's fault hundreds of miles away. While Beric himself may understand and may still be serving out his oath to Ned, the party line has to be complete neutrality and complete loyalty to the small folk being abused on both sides. When Tom sits down to buy Aya and friends' horses, we see these ideals come to a clash. Tom and the others believe they have the right to take the horses or anything else because they are working in the interest of all and have the endorsement of the last, true in their eyes, king, giving them legitimacy. Aya calls through all that and names them robbers. 
She was right, but so are they when they call her the same, again redirecting us to the beginning of the chapter and asking the question what is acceptable when needing to live. At least Tom and the Brotherhood are offering something in written form rather than just taking the horses straight out, but we could have a long conversation about whether such offerings will ever actually be of any use to anyone. Tom gives this quote, War makes thieves of many honest folk. He says that as an excuse for Aya having the horses in the first place, but I like to think he is also trying to excuse himself for having to forcibly take a major resource, by which I mean transport, a bargaining chip, a getaway car, even food and a pinch, from three children who desperately don't want to lose these horses. Now we can sit back and discuss this on a podcast for ages, but Aya can't. She only knows she's outnumbered, has been taken off the road to Riverrun slash her family, and is about to have her vehicle taken away from her. When Shana reassures them that it's safe, it sounds like such hypocrisy to Aya that she snaps, and this thought particularly hits home. He twisted her arm until her hand opened. His fingers were hard with calluses and fearsomely strong. Again, Aya thought, it's happening again, like it happened in the village, with Chiswick and Raff and the mountain that rides. They were going to steal her sword and turn her back into a mouse. Aya does not want to disappear inside herself again, so she lashes out instead. But if all that tugs at the heartstrings, it's nothing compared to this. Harwin, Aya whispered. It was. This, and the paragraph that follows, filled with memories of Winterfell and the Stark family, really hits home. For so long, Aya has had to hide herself, pray that she isn't recognised. It almost feels strange for her to admit the truth now. So much so that when Harwin hesitates, she heartbreakingly wonders if she was ever Aya at all, in a little nod to what's to come in Feast and after. Finally, for the first time since Ned's fall, and I believe this to be all the more important as she never had any kind of formal goodbye to her identity, she just had to run. There is a man of Winterfell in front of her, a man sworn to Stark, and she can truly be Aya again. It is one of the most emotional moments in the series, this great relief bubble that bursts all at once and truly makes us feel Aya's desperation as a pure child wanting to make this connection to her old happy life and her family. Thankfully, she does, and we can bask in our, our tears together. First-time readers especially wouldn't have remembered little celebrated Harwin, won't know what this means or what the future holds, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that she is recognised, she is validated, and she is Aya Stark for the first time since she had to run for her life on the command of Sirio Pharrell. And that is Aya 2. That is part 3 of Storm of Swords. And that's a wrap for today, everybody. So thank you for listening along. Thank you again for helping the podcast do so well lately, like I mentioned earlier. I apologise if my voice isn't quite up to scratch. It was quite difficult getting through this one. Um, it will be difficult going forward with uh, the news from the weekend, but I shan't burden you with that now. Um, for those of you out there that are feeling similar to me, for your various different reasons, we're all in it together. We're all missing together. Uh, I might put some more stuff up about that. I might keep it to myself. I'm not sure yet. But in terms of Scraps and Scrolls and fellow readers, let me tell you about next week, another five chapters. We have Catelyn 2. John 2, Sansa 2, Aya 3, and we finish with Sam 1. New POV time, our last one for this book, until the epilogue anyway. Okay, everybody, thank you very much. I'm going to probably go and have a bit of a cry again. Enjoy your week, and I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>